Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series in the book of Luke, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message entitled, Building a Life on Jesus. So turning your Bibles to Luke 6, 43 to 49, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Every single person, whether they're consciously aware of it or not, is building his or her life on a foundation, and foundations vary. And the worth of each foundation will be proved when the day of trouble comes. There are a great many people who don't consider whether the foundation will sustain them in the day of trouble. And we've all seen pictures of a storm of some sort sweeping away the foundation of a house and then that spectacular fall as the house is swept into a raging river or into an ocean or even succumbs to a mudslide, something cataclysmic. Great is the fall thereof. So let's talk about those foundations for just a little while. You don't need a lot of forethought and reflection to build a life on something that won't endure. When the sun is shining and the weather is pristine, it seems that any foundation will endure. No one learns a great deal about the foundation of one's own life when there are no threats on the horizon, but the idyllic never lasts. Of course, there are numerous storms that face us in life. Reversals of fortune, financial troubles, illnesses, the breakup of a romance, that can be painful. And then some marriages will fail, a spouse can die, children also can die. Some couples are unable to have children, others see chaos in their families, treasured dreams may never come to fruition. It is simply true that in order to make it in life, you have to have a certain level of toughness. Where does this toughness come from, this ability to endure? How is it that some of us don't collapse into despair and simply contemplate suicide? Now, of course, the greatest storm in life is the storm of death. It's a strange thing that very few people plan their lives taking death into account. I mean, after all, it is not a possibility, is it? It's a certainty. We will all experience it. And if we have no foundation that allows us to endure that, well, what a hopeless collapse awaits us. We've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, a sermon in which Jesus speaks of the blessedness of living in the kingdom of God and the ultimate foundation. Jesus has been describing the characteristics of the citizens of his kingdom. He has said that citizens of his kingdom love their enemies and they do good to those who hate them. He has said they don't judge or condemn, but rather are quick to offer grace and forgiveness. They're serious about their own faults long before they're serious about the faults of others. But how can any person sustain such an attitude for a lifetime? And the answer has a great deal to do with the heart. The heart is the command center of any life. The heart determines what we love and what we hate, what we delight in and what we despise. Our hearts determine our focus as well as the things that we neglect. All the passions in our lives arise from our heart. So I'm reading now Luke 6, 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, the context of this saying is in the previous verse. Don't take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own. That is, be self-critical. Examine yourself. Know your faults. Be willing to turn from them. Take the log out of your eye. Expend the effort. 
Men and women of the kingdom are not content to allow sins to remain. Now, in this sermon, Jesus has not told us why that's the case. But from the rest of the New Testament, we learn that the new heart results in the miracle of the new birth. But how does one know the state of one's heart? And here Jesus gives a parable of a tree. The fruit a tree produces can't be different from the health of that tree. If you want to know the health of a tree, just look at the fruit. You know, those of you who either own an orchard or have spent time in one have seen trees overflowing with fruit, apple trees so filled with good apples that the branches are literally bowing down. In contrast, you've also seen trees that are diseased and the fruit that they produce. The fruit is an accurate depiction of the health of any tree. Now, to some, that's a revelation. You know, it's often the case that a murderer is going to say, yeah, I did a horrible crime, but that's not who I am. Underneath this evil act, I'm still a good person, they say. And to which Jesus would respond by saying, the person who says that is self-deluded. The fruit of your life is an accurate depiction of the state of your heart. Now, it's time to ask and answer the question when it comes to fruit, what exactly does Jesus have in mind? And notice the second illustration. The first illustration is that bad trees don't produce good fruit and good trees don't produce bad fruit. And the second illustration is that figs are not grown from thorn bushes nor grapes from bramble bushes. And the point is simple. You'll produce what you are and not something different. So watch a life. If it produces rancor and strife, that's because that's the inner nature of that person. If a person has victims that lie in his wake, it's because he's a predator. If he's gained wealth at the expense of truth and fairness, it's because he's a deceiver. The point's not hard to see. And so from these two parables, the one of the health of a fruit tree and the other from the lack of fruit coming from a bramble bush, Jesus arrives at his point, and it's straightforward. Good people produce good results. So stop for a moment and think of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. In each of these two chapters, Paul gives a list of what to look for in an elder of a local church. They must be a one-woman man. They must not be the kind of person who has baggage in the closet that will cause disgrace. They must have a home life that's peaceful and loving, whose children are believers. They must not be given to drunkenness or to violence or outbursts of anger and so forth. That is, you can't judge the inner recesses of someone's heart But you can judge the fruit. Have a look at their life, says Paul. See what their life produces. And it's fascinating that the call to ministry is based on the character of the individual, even as much as it's based on the skill set of the person. But of course, Jesus is not speaking about those called to the ministry of an elder. He's speaking about everyone. If you want to know if you're good or evil, look at what comes out of your own heart. Again, what kind of fruit are we looking at? Well, look at the context. Are you judging others? Are you quick to condemn? Rather than being a kind person who looks for reconciliation, what kind of a person are you? When you meet together with others, what's the subject of your conversation? How often do you, when meeting with others, express your disappointment with someone else? Are you quick to tell others of the faults of certain people? Or when speaking about others, do you tell about the grace of God that you see in the other? Here's what I know is true. Every human being is created in the image of God. The holiest thing that you'll ever encounter, you know, in the physical realm is another fellow human being created in the image of God. 
And people have capacity. If we notice closely, and they will surprise us. Since I don't have the permission to share the details of what I'm thinking of right now, let me try to be as vague as I can be, but I recently watched a man blessing a woman in very difficult circumstances by giving her a gift that brought tears to her eyes. And when I asked him what inspired this amazing gift, he told me that in his brief encounter with her, he had seen the richness of her passion for Christ, and he looked for a way to bless her and to encourage her. See, in my experience, there really are two kinds of lives. There are those who seek to lift and to bless and to encourage and to give hope, to bear hard times with others and to pray for the very best in the other. And there are those who quick to point out shortcomings in others, their weaknesses and the reason they're overrated and, and why it would be good for them to be taken down a notch or two. And what's the explanation for those two different kinds of approaches? And Jesus says it has everything to do with the state of the heart. See, a good heart produces good, and an evil heart produces suspicion and rancor. Now, a note needs to be added here. Jesus never taught, and so we should not assume, that the way to make a change in our hearts is to change the fruit. As in, you know, try harder to speak better about people and to build them up. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Remember, he said, a bad tree can't, it can't produce good fruit. You might want to change, and you might do so in the short term, but you'll soon revert back to the old patterns. Rather, what we need to do is to ask God to change our hearts. And the key here is conversion. You know, it is confessing that we've come to realize that we're the bramble bush that doesn't produce grapes. Unless God, by his Holy Spirit, changes who we are, we'll never live the life that God wants us to live. The key is not works or a gospel of self-help or a gospel of self-improvement, as interesting as that might be to us. The problem with those programs is that they sometimes result in self-deception. We become more unaware than ever of the logs in our own eyes. Instead, we must come to God and confess the evil in our hearts. We must confess that we have been the bad tree. We're incapable of becoming the good tree. We have to confess our sins. We need to say, unless you save me, I'm lost. And the good news is that we have a savior. Christ died for all those sins, the abundance of bad fruit. Confess it to him and say to him, change my heart, O God, make me new. I'm incapable of self-change, but I know you're capable of killing the evil within me. Here's my life. I surrender to you. We all depend upon the grace of God for all things. In this new year, Back to the Bible Canada persists in our mission to proclaim a biblical truth through audio and video programs, printed resources, and social media, both nationally and internationally. Well, by God's grace, God is blessing this mission. And that grace is manifest through faithful listeners who pray, encourage, and give. It may be that you've intended to offer financial support, but it remains on your to-do list. Might I suggest today might be that day. If you're able, please consider a financial gift and join this God-given mission. To do so, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We're so grateful for your kind generosity. Your investment is used by God to share the gospel with the lost and to grow those who believe.
Jesus said that the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. The heart overflows and the overflow comes to the mouth. James mentioned the same thing in James chapter 3, verse 6. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Now, there's a disturbing picture. The heart is not well. It's not only sick, it's evil. The prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful, telling us we're all right when in fact we are dying. But Jesus is still not done. Now let's read on as we come to Luke 6, 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show him what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So let's begin with those disturbing words. They're intended to further highlight the possibility of self-deception. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Let me put it another way. If a person claims Jesus as Lord and yet lives in disobedience, that person is self-deceived. Let me put it even more plainly by phrasing this as a question. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be obedient to Christ? Now, I phrase it that way because in my estimation, there are a great many teachers today, as well as regular people who answer this with a resounding, yeah, you can. You know, to be fair to them, many of them say, look, it's preferable to obey. You should obey. But obedience is not necessary in order to be saved. And the reason they say that is that if you have it the other way around, that obedience is necessary, then aren't we left with works theology rather than grace theology? I mean, after all, so the argument goes, who is able to obey Christ perfectly? Since none of us is perfect and sinless, and it is true that Christ lived sinlessly for us, and so they say, insisting on obedience, first, while that's not possible, and second, it leads to a doctrine that we're saved by works or by our obedience rather than saved by Christ. Now, on the surface of things, that's right. But there are at least two flaws in this kind of thinking. The first error is that the requirement for obedience is equivalent to the doctrine of works theology or that we work our way into heaven by our obedience. I know there are those who do believe that their obedience is a work that earns heaven for them. And that's what is meant by works theology. After having obeyed God, they think God now owes them heaven as reward. Now, that kind of theology is absolutely condemned in the Bible. You know, for instance, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we are told we are saved by faith and by faith alone. We trust not in our obedience, we trust in Christ who fully obeyed the Father on our behalf and then died for our sins as well. This is faith, this is trust in God, this is the only thing that saves. But that glorious truth, as glorious as it is, does not cancel out the necessity of obedience to Christ. We don't obey Christ in order to earn the reward of heaven. Rather, we obey Christ as a further act of our faith in him. So here's an example. Christ says, love your enemy. And we might say, well, if I do, my enemy is going to triumph over me and I'm going to be left in ruins, to which Christ answers, you'll have to trust me in this. I will protect and defend you. Now, if we say, no, no, I, I won't obey you on this, what have we said? 
we said, I don't think I can trust Christ when he tells me to do this. I hope you see the problem. You say you trust Christ to take away your sins, but you don't trust him when he tells you to forgive your enemy. See, here's the truth about that. Your claim to trust Christ is really a fake. By your lack of obedience to him, you demonstrate that you've never trusted him in the first place. And that's why when he commands you to be, for instance, sexually pure, or to do good to those who curse you, or to give to the needy, or not to lay up treasures on earth, or not to be anxious about anything but always praying, I mean, all those things. When you say, I won't obey you, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't trust you with my life. Look, and if you don't obey, you don't believe, It's like the bramble bush that never produces fruit. Your lack of obedience showcases the state of your heart. You call him Lord, but you don't do what he says. You have, in truth, never believed. You've never trusted. And that's the first answer. Faith can never be divorced from obedience. To attempt to divorce faith from obedience is to make faith into an intellectual exercise alone. Never to trust to the extent of throwing your entire life onto Christ. Now, remember, I've said there are two flaws here. The first flaw is that we attempt to define faith only as an intellectual exercise and not as a throwing of our entire lives onto Jesus. Here's the second flaw. It's that we're assuming that perfect obedience is required. You know, 1 John 1.8, speaking to Christians, says that if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No, perfect obedience is not possible for any of us. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who once said that, you know, if you're a true believer, you know, you're going to fall into sin, but you're going to repent and stand up from that sin. If you sin in the same way a hundred times, the mark of a believer, he stands up a hundred and one times. You know, on the other hand, there are those of us who justify our sins. You know, we make excuses for it, or we argue it's not sin at all. Well, I've met couples living together out of wedlock. They claim they've prayed about it. They have peace about it. They call Jesus Lord, but they will not do what he says. They're very different from the couple that falls into sexual sin, and then they confess it as a monstrous assault against God's law. Then they turn from their wickedness, and they cling to Christ for mercy. See, the second couple was no more perfect than the first, but the second couple will live, and the first couple will die. One couple believed the words of Jesus, and they were cut to the heart, and they turned from their wicked ways. The first couple, however, said, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Yeah, Jesus condemned all porneia, all sex outside of heterosexual lifelong marriage. But that was then, and this is now, they say. We can still call him Lord and not do what he says. But Jesus says, no, you can't. If you are truthful, you are defying me. And all of this brings us to the last words of Jesus' sermon, a very effective illustration of the foundation upon which a person builds their house or their life. What's fascinating about this illustration is that all foundations work until the inevitable storm shows up. And when that happens, the house that was well-built, the one whose foundation was deeply grounded upon Christ and his word and their submission to him, that house or that life will stand. The day of judgment will come, and it will come like a flood, and it would sweep them away. And the only reason they're not destroyed is because the foundation upon which their house rested is the foundation of Christ. It was that they believed in him enough that they allowed him, not the culture, to form them. No, it was Christ that formed them, not their feelings that formed their foundation. No, no, it was Christ not the popular philosophy or the worldview of the day that formed their foundation. No, no, it was Christ, not their flesh that formed the foundation. It was Christ, Christ, his word, his truth, his commands. It was their all. 
And they built on that through a lifetime. And when the floodwaters of final judgment arrived, and when other houses are swept away, they will not be swept away. You can trust Christ to such an extent that when he says it, that settles it. But Jesus also said that there are those who say that, you know, Jesus is Lord, but their heart remains what it always was. The abundance of their hearts do not lean in the direction of Jesus, and eventually the inevitable storm does come. And it may be that the storm is held back for a great period of time, but it will come nonetheless. And when it does, that house will be destroyed. Now, Jesus teaches something in Matthew 25. The unfaithful servant will say, my master's delayed, or in our terms, the flood hasn't arrived. And so the servant begins to eat and to drink with drunkards and ignores the wishes of his master. And Jesus says that disobedient servant will be assigned to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is for that reason that Jesus ends his sermon on the plain with a question of what will happen to you when the storm arrives. You might remember he began this sermon by enunciating a series of four blessings and four woes. Conventional wisdom will be turned on its head. Conventional wisdom says, woe to those who are poor in this world, who are hungry and who weep and are persecuted. That's too bad. And the world says, blessed are those who are rich and who are full and whose life is filled with mirth and parties. And blessed are those when all men speak well of them. And Jesus turned all of that on its head. After the flood comes, he says, when the kingdom of God arrives, everything will be turned on its head. And so it all depends, doesn't it? Where will you build your foundation? And the only answer that we can give, build on Christ. It's the only safe place to stand. John, thanks for a wonderful series. Let me ask you this in in conclusion. Is there great significance in the Christian life in being obedient? Yeah, I'm going to argue that um, in, in truth, Ben, there really is no such thing as a disobedient Christian. Uh, for if we are a Christian, we are a Christ follower. Uh, I'm not arguing that we're perfect as Christ followers, but I do think that if our hearts are not set towards obedience, if it is not the desire of our hearts to obey our Savior in what he commands. If that's not our desire, uh, we have not come to know him. And that's going to sound harsh to some people, but in fact, that is the language that Jesus taught us. And so let's say, oh Lord, give me this heart desire to love the things that you call me to do. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As God's children, we praise our Heavenly Father who overflows with love and grace. Not only did He create us and sacrifice His one and only Son for our redemption, but He longs for intimacy with His people. And prayer is an essential tool for growing relationships with Christ. But for so many of us, prayer remains a discipline in need of deepening. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is offering a booklet entitled 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers hand-selected by Dr. John to reflect on in your quiet moments before God. It's not an instruction manual, but actual prayers intended to be used as a meditation. 
To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.